Today we're continuing in our message series entitled The Way of Love. And we're talking about God's Word. God's Word is the, God's revelation of who He is and who He has created us to be. And God is the creator of the universe. He created each one of us and He gives us commands or instructions that we need to obey. Uh, they're the best way we could possibly live. And these commands are given to us both in the Old and New, and New Testament. And basically, they are ways that we can love God, a ways that we can love the people around us. And that's why we've entitled the message series, The Way of Love, because God's commands instruct us in living uh, in a loving way. Now, we, can't keep these, we cannot keep these commands in our own strength. They're, they're not easy to keep. But as we put our faith in God, he helps us to obey. Uh, he strengthens us. He encourages us so that we obey and experience his blessing in our lives. Today, our message is entitled Practice Justice. Justice. So what is justice? Well, justice is the condition of being morally correct or fair. So how do we determine what is right, what is correct, what is fair? Well, true justice can only be determined from God's word, where God reveals to us what true righteousness and true justice really is. Micah 6, 8, and I encourage you to take out the white page in the middle of your bulletin, and then you can follow along with the message outline and the scriptures there as well as on the screen. Micah 6, 8 says, He, the Lord, has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so the Lord God is the only one who can tell us what is good and the justice that he requires of us. Now this concept of justice, it applies to each one of us individually in our personal lives. We ought to live lives that treat others with justice. Justice also applies to nations. It applies to governments at every level. And the Bible has a lot to say about justice. Perhaps we don't talk about it enough. The Old Testament laws particularly has many principles that apply to us today. Now, we don't have time to talk about this in detail, but oftentimes people will, will um, talk about the Old Testament laws and they'll say, well, this law doesn't apply to us, so why does any law in the Old Testament apply to us? And we see, this is a common argument against applying the Old Testament law to us. Well, as we study the Old Testament law, there are three main types of laws in the Old Testament. We're briefly going to go over this. The first is the ceremonial law, which has to do with basically the sacrificial worship. You know, they sacrificed animals for the atonement of sin in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. But the Old Covenant pointed forward to the New Covenant when Jesus sacrificed on the cross. And so that is why we no longer follow the practices of the Old Covenant, animal sacrifices and such, because that has been uh, done away with through the coming of Jesus Christ. So that is the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. The second type of laws in the Old Testament are the civil laws. They specifically dealt with the government of Israel, which was a theocracy ruled by kings and prophets and priests. Many of those principles still apply today, but obviously certain details do not apply to us and our governments today. But yet, certain things we can learn from the principles uh, that are in those laws. The third type of law is the moral law exemplified uh, by the Ten Commandments and the other laws that relate to the Ten Commandments. And those laws are still universally applicable. Jesus made it very clear that the moral law of the Old Testament still applied to uh, believers today. 
Now, our whole system of democracy in America was created based on biblical principles. How are the laws and government of America determined today? Well, they're determined by politics, is it not? The activity and, and affairs involved in managing a state or government. And so we live in a democracy. Uh, if you lived in a dictatorship, you might not have much say on what happened, how the government ruled. But we live in a democracy. And in a democracy, we, should be, we can be involved in politics. How are we involved? Well, we can vote. Fortunately, I read some stats that said 20 million Christians did not vote in the last elections. How sad. Right? That's not just a privilege, it's a responsibility as believers to be involved in, our, uh, in the justice of our government. We can also be involved in political activities. God's justice in our nation should be based on God's word. Recently, I was astounded to read a poll from uh, Pew Research that said 63% of American adults say that the church should keep out of political matters. Well, let's think about that for a minute, okay? There are two and only two types of people in the world. There are believers, which make up the church. And there are unbelievers, which make up what the Bible calls the world. And so if the church and believers are to keep out of political matters... Political matters will be dominated by the world, by unbelievers who know little of biblical justice. And so it is imperative, it is commanded by God's word that the church, including the members and the leaders, seek to bring God's kingdom justice into our government. Because we have the privilege, we have the liberty by living in a democracy to be able to influence justice in our land. Matthew 5, verse 13 and 14 speaks to believers and says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's speaking to the church, speaking to believers, salt preserves. And in our society, we are to preserve uh, a godly influence in our society, in our country. We are to let our light shine. Jesus was the light of the world, and we let his light shine through us to illuminate every aspect of our lives, including how we are governed in our land. We need to be actively participating in democracy in America. And so today we're going to look at some of the biblical principles that directly apply to both our individual lives and to our involvement in the politics of our government. First of all, let's seek to better understand a biblical legal system. Now, as we said before, the uh, many of the laws in the Old Testament govern the nation of Israel. But they give us principles that apply to a biblical legal system. And these principles really are the basis of our government in America today. And we must not deviate from these biblical principles as some are suggesting. A biblical legal system must be fair and honest. Now let me just give a little background to this verse be we read it. Exodus chapter 18 describes a visit between Moses, who was the leader of all of Israel, and his father-in-law, Jethro. At this time, Moses was acting as a judge of the entire nation of Israel, which uh, consisted of probably millions of people. And 
as the judge, he would hear various cases. People would come forward with their cases. You know, somebody stole my pig. No, not my pig. Sorry, my land. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, somebody stole my lamb. Uh, or somebody, somebody uh, said something bad to me or somebody stole something or whatever. Uh, all kinds of cases would come before him and he would have to give a pronouncement, judge who was right, who was wrong, what the penalty was. And he couldn't keep up. He was sitting there night and day. People were coming, and he still couldn't keep up with the volume. And so Jethro looked at this, and he just shook his head. And, um, you know, obviously Moses couldn't be a great husband to Jethro's daughter if he was just busy all night and day doing this. And so he gave Moses some advice. And I believe that the Bible makes clear this advice came from God. God gave Jethro this wisdom, and it's recorded in Scripture. And the heart of it is in these verses here in Exodus 18, verses 21 to 22. This is Jethro's advice to Moses. He said, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And so the system of government that Jethro proposed was one of basically hierarchical layers of governing. The chief of thousands would report to Moses. The chief of hundreds would report to the chief of thousands and so on. If the people had a case, they would first go to the chief of tens. And probably the chief of tens knew who they were. They would bring the, uh, their case to them. If the chief of tens could resolve their case, then it would be resolved. If he couldn't, he would refer it to perhaps the chief of fifties and so on up the ladder until finally it was resolved. And so only the most difficult, uh, most Largest cases would be, have to be resolved by Moses. And so in this way, the workload was distributed. Governing was, was often done, usually done by the chiefs who were closest to the situation, to the people involved. Now, in order for this to work, these chiefs, or, or judges we might call them, must have three characteristics. They must fear God. They must be, well, actually four. They must be able men. They must be trustworthy. And they must hate a bribe. And so chiefs that had those characteristics, what would they be? They would be fair. They would be honest in their judgments. They would make their judgments according to God's law. When Israel moved into the promised land, further instructions were given concerning this biblical legal system. It had to be wise and orderly. Deuteronomy 16 gives the laws after they were moving into the promised land. He said, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns, that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. And so as the people moved into the promised land, towns were established. And judges or officers would be appointed in those towns depending on the size of the towns. The requirement for the judges must be that they would judge with righteous judgment and not pervert justice. Now again... There's going to be a hierarchical, hierarchical layer, if I can say the word twice. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 says, Any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. 
And so if the judges in a particular town couldn't make a, a, a judgment on a case, it would then be referred to the priest and a higher judge who would make the decision. Again, in order for this to work, the judges must make their decisions based on God's word. They must render righteous decisions. And so those are the principles of a biblical legal system. Now, these principles, uh, I mean, we see them at work everywhere in our lives today. Uh, these principles apply to every area of life where God has established authority, uh, families and churches and business and other organizations as well as government. And so we all need to learn to be fair and honest in our dealings. We need to be wise and orderly as we work with other people. We are all under authority. Each and every one of us is under some type of authority in our lives. We need to submit to that authority unless it contradicts God's word. With respect to our government, we need to elect leaders who are fair, honest, wise, and respectful of God's authority. And we have that privilege. We have that responsibility in our, in our country. When we vote... It may not come as a surprise to you. Some people, it seems to be a surprise, but we are always choosing between imperfect people uh, when we are voting for leaders. There is no perfect candidate. Uh, they've never existed. They never will exist. So we must vote for the one that best upholds the most important biblical principles. And generally, that is not a difficult decision these days. Justice requires truthfulness. So in order for the biblical system of authority to work, there must be truthfulness at every level. Truth brings stability. We're going to come to the, back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is the ninth of the Ten Commandments. It specifically deals with a legal case in which a, a person would be giving false testimony regarding another person. So what would happen? Uh, somebody was accused of a crime. A person gave false witness. And what could possibly happen? Well, the person could be convicted of the crime and punished for a crime they didn't commit because someone gave false witness. That would be a great injustice. And so this is a command uh, that people should not lie or bear false witnesses in a court case against their neighbor. Now we're going to see in a few minutes some of the, the instructions that God gives to deal with the problem of false witnesses if somebody disobeys this command. Now besides the application of this command to legal cases, it also carries the, the great principle of truth-telling for each one of us individually in every aspect of our lives. Truth should be the norm in legal cases. It should be the norm in business dealings. It should be the norm in dealing with other people. And when everyone tells the truth, it brings stability to relationships. It brings stability to the, uh, to the relationships that are involved. It brings stability to our communi communities. When Lying or false witnesses become rampant in a country, in a business, in a relationship. The entire mesh of relationships, whether it's a society, a government, or a business, it becomes unstable. 
because people cannot be trusted. And so truth-telling brings stability. Justice sustains interdependence. We are dependent on one another. We can help one another. We can help each other tell the truth. So now let's see how God's Word deals with the problem of false witnesses because a false witness can cause great injustice to be done. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so this command is the first way that the issue of a potential false witness is dealt with. The testimony of one witness is not sufficient to support conviction for a crime. Rather, there needs to be the evidence of two or even better three witnesses in order for a charge to be vindicated. The second way that a false witness is dealt with is in the next verses. Verse 18 and 19, the judges shall inquire diligently if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So suppose a false witness accused another person of stealing from him and the punishment was to repay the stolen amount with an additional penalty added. If the false witness was caught in his lies, then he would have to give the same amount of money plus the penalty to the person he had borne false witness against. And so there were severe but proportional penalties for every case of false witnesses that were discovered. So obviously that would make you think twice about being a false witness in some type of legal case or even some business dealing. Those penalties should act or would act as a deterrent for others being false witnesses because justice requires truthfulness. And so being truthful in all of our relationships is essential to building strong, healthy relationships. This is true in a marriage. I mean, if one marriage partner lies to the other partner about things going on, uh, there's going to be great trouble in that relationship. The same is true in families with parents to children. There needs to be truthfulness in both directions. The same needs to be true in the church family. The same needs to be true in business dealings or any type of relationships. Our system of government, whether local government, state government, federal government, must be committed to being truthful. And how do we know what is true? Well, really the only basis for truthfulness is an understanding of God's word. In our democratic system, in our democratic government, the interpretation of our laws is, is really a, a matter dealt with by our judicial system, one of the three branches of government. And unfortunately, today we have many judges who do not interpret laws based on God's word. And so we need to pray. We need to do what we can to see them replaced with just godly judges. Justice must be even handed. And so when justice is to be applied at every level, it has to be applied correctly. It has to be applied righteously based on both uh, the crime that has been committed and on the person who committed the crime, justice needs to be balanced. 
In Exodus chapter 21, there's a case described where two men are fighting. We don't know what they're fighting over, but one of them accidentally strikes a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely to a child. Now, in those days, a premature death often meant the death of the baby, you know, unless the baby was very close to being born. Uh, they didn't have all the modern medical things that we have today. And the law required that the person who caused the harm, either to the mother and or the baby, to be responsible. This is in Exodus 21, verse 23. If there is harm to either the mother or the, or the baby, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, oftentimes this is, uh, is used to disparage, this verse is used to disparage the Old Testament. This is, was never applied, never meant to be applied literally. We have no cases in the Old Testament where, uh, as the Muslims do, you know, you, you hurt somebody's hand, they chop your hand off or something. There's no cases of that in the Old Testament. Uh, what is meant here was that the punishment must be balanced with the harm done. Uh, the greater the harm, the greater the punishment. If the baby died, the punishment must reflect the loss of life. And here we have... Uh, an example of the, the value of an unborn child. Now, this situation would be an accidental death, right? If they accidentally struck this woman, the baby was born, uh, it came out and, and died. It would be an accidental death. The laws concerning accidental deaths would be applied, which was not the death penalty. Lesser harm would result in lesser penalties. Justice must also be not only not only balanced, uh, that the punishment must be in keeping with the crime, smaller crimes, smaller punishments. It must also be impartial. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so in this verse, we're warning against partiality, either to the poor, some people tend to be if you're poor, you should get off. Or some people should say, if you're great, if you have riches or power, you should get off. But you should be impartial. Uh, being partial to either the rich or the poor is equally wrong. Every human being must be treated exactly the same, irrespective of their age, their wealth, their background, their physical appearance, or any other characteristic. And so impartial judgment is here called judging righteously. And so justice must be even-handed. And so it's obvious how justice being even-handed, you know, should play out in our court system, uh, our legal system. But for this last point, let's talk for a minute about how it applies to our personal lives and to our church. In James chapter 2, we don't have time to read it. You can read it on your own. It talks about not showing partiality in the church. It describes a situation where a rich man visits a church, and obviously he's dressed, you can tell he, I don't know how I should get into this, but, uh, you know, he pulls up in a Mercedes or something, he gets out, and you can tell this guy, this guy's really rich, and they have him have an a honored seat, you know, in the front of the church because he's treated so well. And then a poor man comes in, and they pay no attention to him and say, oh, you can sit in the back. Well, that's obviously showing partiality to the rich man. And James says that type of partiality is sin. Everyone needs to be treated the same in the family of God, no matter they're rich, they're poor, or whether they have uh, 
same skin color, different skin color, whether they come from this country, whether they come from that country. Uh, everyone needs to be treated the same, valued the same. We must love our neighbor as ourselves in every area that we meet them, whether the church or any other part of our lives. That certainly is part of us practicing justice in our individual lives. So we've really barely scratched the surface as what the Bible teaches about justice. Uh, the principles of God's word should affect our personal lives, should affect our politics, should affect our government. It's a huge and vast topic. Uh, in this election year, we must all seek to practice justice. Part of that is loving those, treating those kindly who have a different view on the issues than we do. Even if we are quite confident that they have an unbiblical view, uh, we still have to love them. Uh, we still have to uh, we should seek to, we should seek to talk about a biblical view of justice, a biblical view of what is right and wrong, but we need to love those that do not agree, that do not understand. We practice justice by being knowledgeable on the issues of the day. Uh, in this election year, we need to understand the issues. We need to vote in keeping with biblical principles because God has called us to be salt and light in a very, very dark world. And as we do that, let's forget, not forget to pray both for ourselves to be people of justice and for others to support justice and to meet Jesus because Jesus uh, is the embodiment of justice and righteousness. And when people meet Jesus, he transforms their lives and to becoming more and more people of righteousness and people who practice justice. Now, the first step to becoming a believer, somebody who practices justice as a Christian, according to the biblical definition, is to admit that we've sinned, we've done wrong things. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven. We ask him to forgive us, to come into our lives, and we commit our lives to following him as our Lord and Savior. And so if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ in your life yet, I'd encourage you to do it today. If you made a commitment in the past and you want to recommit your life today, I'd encourage you to do that. So let's bow our heads right now. I'm going to pray. I encourage you to pray along with me to take that important step or to recommit your life. Pray something like this. Father, today, I admit that I've done wrong things. I practice injustice in my life. I've, I've hurt people. I've been partial to people. I've done things I knew were wrong. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that my sins might be forgiven. I ask for your forgiveness. I've turned away, I repent of those sins, and I put my faith in you, Jesus. Come into my life. I commit myself to following you and your ways of righteousness and justice all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.